Right, I have the privilege today of uh, carrying on the series of the treasures of the church. We looked at the Bible last week, and this week the topic is Jesus, the only saviour. Um, so that's what we can look at today. But I thought I'd just share something very briefly before we start. Uh, this morning, Hannah and I went and played squash. Uh, very, very good idea. Um, and then we went home, left Hannah at home, and I nipped to the tip to take some junk that we had. Um, and I had to get rid of a window, so I put it in the back of the car with some other stuff. Got to the tip, said to the chap, I've got, I've got a window, where do you want me to put it? He said, put it in scrap metal. It's like, it's a plastic one. I know it's got glass in it. And I just thought... I don't understand, so if anyone's got any answers to why the man asked me to put it in scrap metal, please uh, let me know at the end. That's all I wanted to check with you, that I wasn't being stupid. And the other thing, I was chatting with someone this week, and they said they sometimes feel like they kind of want to get a bit involved in church. They get excited by something that's said, and they feel like they want to, to say something. And I just want to encourage you that if you feel like doing that, uh, do. There's, there's three options, essentially, in, in, in Christian circles. Option number one is you can just shout, Amen. Um, if you feel so led. Option number two is uh, preach it, brother. That's the second option. Or number three is, is this a prophet of old? So do, do feel free at any point to, uh, to just jump in with one of those three. They're, um, they're all the sensible options. So yeah, like I said, we're looking this week at Jesus, the only saviour. So I'll pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Father, we thank you that Jesus is also described as the word of God. He is the one that gives us our picture of you. He is, um, yeah, he is the person who is entirely God and entirely man. Father, we thank you for him. And Father, we pray that today you would reveal him to our hearts and that we would want to know him more, love him more, and to become more like him and to share him with others. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, in other news, Rob started out as apprentice for the church this week, and we think we've made the clicker work. So that is not a week wasted. Magic. So first time it's worked for months. So I was looking at this topic and this idea that Jesus is the only saviour. And um, so I've written the word postmodernity on there, which may not mean a great deal to some people, but it didn't really mean a great deal to me until I kind of looked at what it meant, found a definition, and then felt clever by putting that up instead of a definition. Um, and postmodernity is kind of the time that we live in now and the way that kind of people, the kind of um, lens that they look through and see the world through. And basically, in postmodernity, according to Wikipedia, which is, you know, um, an excellent uh, source of information, uh, it says that in the kind of postmodern, postmodern society, it's an option, really, you can just kind of reject all realities, if you like, as a social construct. So you can just say, if you do something in a certain way, that's, you just kind of made it like that. It doesn't mean it has to be like that. I can't really say it's right or wrong. Um, essentially, in a postmodern society, you can, yeah, there's no absolute truth. You can just say, you know, if you like doing it, that's up to you, but I might not like doing it. I can't go to someone and say, what you're doing is fundamentally wrong, because it's kind of up to them what they do. That's what um, postmodern society kind of teaches. It's like feelings and desires rule. If you want to do something, if it makes you feel good, do it. That's the idea of it. And basically, um, if you make any claim to truth, particularly an objective truth, you say that something is true for everyone, or an absolute truth where it says everyone has to believe this, or they're wrong on that subject. You know, you could be branded as a maniac or a kind of fundamentalist or oppressive. 
Some people say that Christians are a bit like that because they say they have the absolute truth and people that claim to have the absolute truth use it as a way to oppress people. But I don't think that's what Christianity teaches. I think it has an absolute truth, but I don't think it uses it to oppress. So in a postmodern world like ours, right and wrong is up for grabs. Uh, Good and bad is up for grabs. Morality, truth, all these things, you can kind of decide what you think is right and wrong. So then when you come in with a phrase... Jesus is the only saviour. That is not a postmodern statement. That doesn't kind of tick any of those boxes. That says there's this one chap and he is the one and only saviour. Okay? This implies lots of other things. But saying that, that does, that's not kind of a feelings thing, isn't it? I, I can't really say, I feel that Jesus is the one and only saviour. The statement, Jesus is the only saviour, is a kind of absolute, it's a definite thing you're saying. This is true, and actually it's true for everyone when you say it like that. But the thing about it, when you look at this statement and you say, Jesus is the only saviour, I kind of looked at it and I thought, it definitely implies at least four things. One, it implies that we're in a, we're in a state from which we need saving. If there is a saviour, and he's a saviour for everyone, then we are in a position that we need saving from. So that was the first one. Second one was that you and I are incapable of saving ourselves because he's the only saviour. If we were able to save ourselves, there'd be more than one. Uh, The next one is that Jesus exists and he's more capable than you because he can save and you can't. And the last one is that Jesus is your only hope. There are a few of the things I think this statement claims, which are bold claims, and people in society would disagree on lots of levels, but the Bible teaches this. And ultimately, I think one of the amazing things about the Bible is, if you put it into any culture in the world today, on some level, it's going to offend that culture, which is one of the reasons I think you can tell the Bible comes from God, because there's some bits in every culture that are great, and there are some bits in cultures that aren't so good. So if you put the Bible into our culture... People might say, you know, the, the loving and forgiving bit, that's really nice. But the kind of idea that, you know, you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, that, that's a little bit draconian and a little bit hard line, you know, that's not quite right. Whereas if you go and take it into kind of an Arab state, they'll say the bit on forgiveness and mercy and grace, now that is taking it a step too far. We want more justice. And the bit on no sex before marriage, now that is a bit liberal. You want to ramp that up a few notches and we'll just make sure that's really strict. You know, if you put it into any culture... It kind of contradicts some of the things that are in that culture. So anyway, let's get on to a bit about Jesus as the only saviour. It's brilliant when the clicker works. So, um, so I think I've pressed it twice. That's fine. there. feels a bit like a pantomime. It's behind you and it's gone. Um, so, this idea of functional. I think whatever culture says about like, the idea of being postmodern or anything like that, everyone in the culture finds for themselves a saviour of some kind. I think our life might kind of betray our culture. I think we all desire a saviour of some sort. And basically that's because that saviour is not necessarily Jesus, but I think we all try and find a saviour somewhere. 
because we all have, we all maybe live in a kind of functional hell, or we, we have this problem that is a functional hell to us, and we desire something much better, something that we think will be perfect, that it becomes our functional heaven. And we have to find a way of getting there, and that is our functional saviour. So we may think something's really bad for us, and we want to live like something else, and the way to get there, the kind of bridge from bad to good, is our functional saviour. I think that's a lot of the time how we live. And even for Christians sometimes we live like that. But our functional saviours and functional hells and functional heavens uh, vary for everyone. We all, have, uh, we all have different ones or live in a different way. And I've got a few examples I'll run through in a second. But ultimately our functional saviour, whatever it is, receives from us our love, it receives our desires, it receives our affections, it might receive our time, our money, our protection. If somebody starts like poking fun at it, you will immediately jump in and like protect it. And it, if ultimately it receives our worship. And I think that's because these are things that we were designed to do. I think that you and I are designed as people who are worshippers. We're designed to worship and desire something and to understand that we need a saviour. And these are things, all those things, love, time, affection, money, protection and worship, they're all things that as Christians we're meant to give to Jesus and not to something else. And when you choose a saviour, whatever it is, that saviour will either enslave you or it will liberate you. And Jesus is the one ultimately who liberates. Okay, so let's see if these uh, examples of mine work. Right, I've got nine, I'll run through them quickly. So the first one is, your functional hell could be a rubbish car. You may think, I really want a brilliant car. My desire in life, my kind of functional heaven is to have a brilliant car. Whatever it is, whatever car you like, so a I don't know, anything you like. Whatever your favourite car is, that would be your functional heaven. The problem is you live in functional hell because you have a mini metro that breaks down and you know, it's got a hole in the oil tank and it's always leaking. You've got all this work. So you can't, you're living in functional hell with your mini metro and you want, a, I don't know, a, somebody give me a car that's nice. Vauxhall Vectra. That's it. You've got a mini metro, but you want a Vauxhall Vectra. And you're, so that's your functional hell, functional heaven. Your functional saviour becomes Vauxhall Vectra magazine weekly. You start reading through that to see what your saviour is like. You start saving up money to buy yourself your functional heaven. And you start watching Top Gear incessantly, even though they're not, I believe they're not a massive fan of the Vectra itself. But you, you watch it incessantly because you think this is all about cars and that's what I really love. Um, or... Your functional hell might be that you're hungry. You may live in a state of hunger, and that's, you know, you really don't like this. Your, uh, you know, your functional heaven, then, is kind of eating wonderful food. So your functional saviour becomes a full fridge with all the nice things that you really enjoy. So you, you think, oh, I'm feeling a bit hungry in my functional hell. You go and you open your fridge. The glory of the Lord shines out of it, and you fill up on Coke and other things that you find in your fridge that you enjoy. That takes you from one to the other. Uh, the next one is you may, your functional hell may be your like, anonymity. You may feel really kind of unimportant and insignificant. And you may crave fame and celebrity and stuff like that. So your functional saviour becomes something that takes you from like, being a nobody to being a somebody. So you might do something really stupid that the papers um, 
you know, come and see and like, get all the picture in the paper all the time. Or you might uh, go on Big Brother, which is also losing its popularity, but you know what I mean? Everyone sees you and starts to, to like you. Another one might be that we see like, fairly regularly in the papers is some people's functional hell is just normal life. And they just can't get their head around it. So what they do is they desire kind of a numbness and a, a way to kind of escape normal life. And their functional saviour becomes maybe drugs or alcohol. That takes away the pain of what they're feeling and lets them live in their functional heaven. The next one could be you may be somebody who feels terribly guilty about something. And that guilt could be your kind of functional hell. Uh, your functional heaven would be kind of an absolution, feel, not feeling guilty. So you might see a counsellor, you might see a psychiatrist or something like that. You might you know, find a friend and just tell them all the horrible things you've ever done. You might go to church and think, you know, I can get, get rid of some of my guilt there. And your functional heaven is the absolution that you feel. Personally, one of the things that I struggle with, and, uh, and Hannah knows this uh, very well, is I kind of, my functional hell in some ways is a kind of lack of change and lack of imagination. And I always want to be doing something uh, that I can change and alter. And Hannah has the, the kind of problem of me because I want to change things and, you know, things are fine the way they are. Um, but then, you know, my functional heaven won't be like constant creativity, basically Lego. You know, you can change it, you can pick it apart, you can put it back together in a different shape, you can play with it. Um, so my functional saviour is either Lego or a pen and paper and I can do these things and then I can show them to Hannah and she can tell me off. Um, for some people, functional hell might be being single and functional heaven might be being in a relationship or being married. So what they need is they need to find a boyfriend or girlfriend or a fiancé or join match.com or something like that. That becomes their functional saviour to take them from single to married. Some people it might be having no kids and they might desire a family. So that might be IVF or it might be adoption, um, something like that. And then I think my last example, yes, last example is maybe you, your kind of functional hell is feeling lonely or incomplete. And your functional heaven is you, feel, you want to feel wanted and loved or depended on. So some people get a pet. Is that because, you know, the pet depends on you for its food? Um, or you may get like a, a project person. You may find somebody who's really needy and got all sorts of issues that they need help working through. And you may kind of take that on as your functional saviour to make you depended on and liked. I met someone uh, not too long ago and I was chatting to them. And they were telling me how bad it's been for them since they lost their pet cat. They had to have their pet cat put down because, you know, it wasn't well and had um, some kind of tumour on its innards. And she was saying that ever since I've had the pet cat put down, I've had this empty feeling inside, I just can't get rid of it. Um, and I was thinking, this, this, this sounds a bit mad. You've got a family that you seem to really like and you've got this emptiness inside. And so she said, but I'm not going to get another, another cat because I just can't bear the kind of having to go and get the vet to put it down. So, um, so what I've decided to do is I've decided to get a puppy. <laughs> so, which has become a puppy walker for the blind, which is obviously a really nice thing to do. Um, but it's just like everyone finds some way of dealing with their functional hell. So there's some ideas. Um, and you can probably think of lots more yourselves. But there is a problem, I think, with functional saviours, taking us from functional hell to functional heaven, which is that they only deal with symptoms and not causes. They don't get to the root of the issue. Um, so, feeling a bit lonely, you get a cat. 
but ultimately the cat's going to die or it's going to annoy you. It might get run over by a car or you're always gonna, you have to find something to look after when you go on holiday. They've all got little problems. But it only deals with, it doesn't deal with the real cause of why you feel lonely. Yeah, what else? You might have a rubbish car and you may think the Vauxhall Vector is going to be the perfect thing for you, but it'll break down and then you'll be really cross with it because your functional saviour hasn't worked out for you. Um, basically, they can't get to the heart, to the root of the problem. And ultimately, they only lead to a temporary happiness. They, they don't last forever. Um, so, yeah, I think all of those things that I mentioned, they don't, don't necessarily last forever. So if your functional hell is singleness and you get married and you think, now I'm married, it'll be perfect. So you watch the films, people get married or they get together and it's perfect. The first time you get into an argument or, or a bit of a fight or a disagreement, suddenly your functional saviour has become your enemy and you don't quite know how to deal with it. They only lead to temporary happiness. And ultimately, compared to the Bible, Jesus says that if he is the only saviour, like we saw in the, the little video that we showed at the beginning, he is the only saviour. And if you don't have him, you're headed for hell, which is an eternal torment. So a functional saviour can only deal temporarily a little bit of happiness, but it will lead to eternal torment. And I think one of the other main problems is that they mask our real need for a real saviour who can deal with all sorts of other issues at the same time. So if we find something that like, fills us temporarily, it masks a need that we have for a real saviour to sort out the root cause of all these problems. Basically, when you find a functional saviour, it's a bit like if somebody's been in for like, open-heart surgery, they've cracked their chest open, they've pulled back the ribs, they've done the work that they need a bit inside, they put the ribs back together and they just put a plaster across it and send you home. You know, it's, it's, it's maybe helpful, probably isn't, but it's not going to last. So what I'm saying. A functional saviour is trying to fix a massive problem with just a plaster. Great. So, I think we'll try and come back to some reality now. I said a bit earlier on that you and I were designed by God for a purpose. We're designed to be um, we're designed to be worshippers. Ian's been saying uh, over a few weeks ago about the idea that as as people, when we uh, one of the greatest things that we do is we can stand back together and be amazed by something bigger than ourselves. We're designed corporately to be worshippers of something. And I think when, you know, sometimes you kind of hear this idea that, that scientists would, would have us believe that we're almost a cruel joke that the universe has, has played that's happened. We've just turned up by chance. There's nothing that's made, it, uh, made us exist. And we, we know ultimately our life is meaningless, sometimes people say, because, you know, if you've just evolved from nothing and there's no God then there's no meaning in life so you're well, effectively a cruel joke played by the universe but if there's a God who loves you and says that you're his image bearers and you're special and you're important to him your life has meaning and our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever I think maybe in some churches you, you might drop in and you may think well you know they, they, they sing songs but they all look really miserable so they, they, they might be kind of worshipping God and glorifying him, but they're not really enjoying him. So I'm not quite sure what's the myth there. Sometimes uh, you go into places and it feels a little bit like that. But I think you and I, we're purpose-built worshippers. And we're made to worship God. But because sin came into the world with Adam, God gets replaced by something. Whether that's we replace God with ourselves and we, we desire to glorify ourselves and enjoy ourselves forever, whether it's football, whether we glorify and try to enjoy football forever, or nature. Some people even worship nature, don't they? Um, whether it's our spouse, uh, whether it's our kids, 
if we have them, whether it's art of some form, whether it's our pets or whether it's our freedom, we try to replace God with something else and we glorify that and try to enjoy that forever. But that does never work out because they, they never actually fully satisfy us. And we were originally created in God's image to reflect God's glory. And um, one of the things that we'll be looking at shortly in our gospel community is the idea of the Trinity. And that when I was thinking about this this week, um, it made me sort of think that in, in God himself as a, a Trinity, as three persons from eternity past to eternity future, outside, like, before the world was created, before people existed, God wasn't deficient. He wasn't thinking, I feel really lonely, because there were three of them and they loved each other and there was the, the perfect unity there. God wasn't deficient without us. But when God made the world... The Bible, if you get, read through Genesis chapter 1, it says he made, uh, you know, there's like a sea and it was good. He made plants and animals and it was good. But then it says he made people and it was very good. We're like the kind of cherry on the cake of creation. And into that, Adam was made the first person. And basically, Adam lived in heaven, in a way. Um, Adam lived in a place that was perfect. Now, can you right, imagine living like this? Okay? This is how Adam lived. Adam had the perfect boss who was also his friend. God loved him. Adam loved God. God told Adam what to do. Adam did it and it wasn't oppressive. He enjoyed it. Working the land was wonderful. It kind of, you know, I imagine he planted the carrot and it sprang up fairly easily. There was no not like toil involved. He had the perfect wife. You know, God had made him the perfect wife. They, and Eve was described as his helper. And they worked together. There was never any kind of bickering or arguments She'd never say, put the bin out, and he wouldn't put the bin out. Then he got told off for not putting the bin out, and he still didn't do it anyway. There's never any of that. They all, everything was perfect between husband and wife. And his home was a beautiful garden where he lived, and everything was wonderful. His work he really enjoyed because it fulfilled him. Uh, God asked him to do it, and it pleased Adam to go and do it. And lastly, as English people, we, we won't experience this yet, but the weather in Eden was perfect as well. You know, there was no, like, he didn't wake up one day and go, oh, raining yesterday, miserable, pretty horrible. It was nothing like that. He enjoyed everything that was there. Uh, the Bible describes it as a, as a mist came up to water the, the, the ground and everything, and the mist subsided. So he knew what was coming. He could predict the weather, because the mist came up and the mist went down, and it was wonderful. It watered all the plants. He didn't have to go out with a, you know, a watering can and water his carrots and his potatoes and all that sort of stuff. That all happened for him. And all this was because in the beginning there was no sin. God's commands for Adam were for him to enjoy and for him to be fully human. All God's rules given to Adam were to, weren't to kind of oppress him or to, to make life difficult, but they were so that he could experience life as a full human, being a worshipper of God, being a worker, because something, that's something that we were made to do is to work. He enjoyed all the things that God asked him to do. But then, Adam chose to give it all up. Adam chose um, to, to put that almost... He, he desired something greater than that perfect life that he had. He desired a different heaven when, the, 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 when kind of sin came along. He desired to know God... Uh, to, sorry, to, to know what life would be like, like God was the promise, wasn't it, of the serpent. That if you eat of this apple, you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. That was the promise. Ultimately, Adam tried to become his own saviour by choosing his own destiny. 
and he chose to sin and go against God. But sin changed everything. He was promised that it wouldn't, and apparently the fruit was tasty, so his functional saviour lasted for as long as the taste lasted in his mouth. But the sin changed everything. His perfect boss and friend, the next time, after Adam had sinned, that he hears God's footsteps in the garden, he runs and he hides, which is complete, uh, completely different to what it was like before. As soon as sin came into the world, Adam was scared of God. When you look at his perfect wife, as soon as sin comes into the world, God says to Adam, where are you? Adam, like a coward, jumps up and goes, it's her fault, she made me do it. And men have been the same ever since. The perfect home that he had in Eden, where everything was wonderful and and nothing was wrong, he got kicked out of because he had misused it. His work from then on became difficult toil and hard labour. He would have to really work the ground to make it soft so he could plant things in it. And the weather after Eden uh, became chaotic and we moan about the rain and stuff today. Although apparently it will snow this evening, so so let's hope for that. Uh, Unless you don't like snow. Adam's choice, Adam's choice look, uh, took him from heaven where he was, li- was living to heading towards hell because he'd chosen to turn his back on God and live estranged from him. Okay. And like we looked through in the video, we as kind of children of Adam, we're born in Adam's line to inherit hell rather than to inherit he- heaven. I'm struggling with my words there, aren't I, with he- heaven. So from Adam, we're children of his and because of that we are born inheriting hell rather than heaven. And I think if there had been a way for Adam to go from that straight back into Eden, he'd have been an absolute fool not to take it. If everything is perfect over there and you're kicked out of it, if you could just like stroll back in, you would. I think it'd be kind of silly not to. But Adam, heaven was, um, Eden was closed, wasn't it, with, with two angels of flaming swords, so there was no way he was going to get back in. So he wasn't able to get back to the heaven that he had been enjoying. And ultimately, we, like Adam, get to choose who or what our God is. And our choice determines our destiny. Okay. So let's uh, have a look at what our saviour needs to be like. So what does, for you and I, a saviour who can take us from the real hell that the Bible talks about to the real new creation that the Bible talks about. So that's, you know, that's ultimately what we need to know. Is if we're people living, heading to hell, outside of Jesus, what does he need to be like to actually be sufficient to save us? Well, I think there are basically two things that kind of play out in this. The first is the Bible says that he needs to be sinless. Sorry, he needs to be human, that's where I'm starting. He needs to be human because in Hebrews... Uh, 10 verse 4 it says that the, the blood of bulls will not atone for sins the idea in the Old Testament of sacrifices would the blood would cover the sin it would kind of mask it but it wouldn't actually deal with it it wouldn't fully get rid of it all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were all sacrifices pointing forwards to Jesus coming and dying they were just kind of foreshadows of Jesus so firstly our saviour needs to be a human person because only human blood can deal with the sin. And secondly, our saviour needs to be perfect. So firstly, he needs, and in that perfection, he needs to be sinless. So in thought and word and deed, the person has to be sinless. Because 
the sinlessness of our Saviour. As he, you know, for us, that's Jesus. He dies on the cross. And his sinlessness, when God looks at that, God can take his life and it atones for all our sin. It takes away the guilt of all our sin before God. We're, we've upset and we've done things that, that God doesn't like. And Jesus never did. He didn't do anything wrong. And because of that, as his blood was spilt, he can take away all the, the sin that we have done. And that leaves us guiltless before God. But there's another side to that as well. So if that's, if that's all Jesus did, if all Jesus did was he lived a perfectly kind of sinless but neutral life, he didn't do anything wrong, but he didn't do anything like good and died, all that would happen is our sins would be forgiven and that would be it. You know, we wouldn't have anything to merit us for heaven. But our Saviour not only needs to be sinless, but he needs to be perfect in obedience so that when our kind of lives are swapped, so he takes our sin and we get his sinlessness, when he takes our um, imperfect obedience or our disobedience, we get his perfect obedience. He gives us his righteousness. And because we're, our sins are dealt with and we gain Christ's righteousness, when God looks at us, he sees people who are now pure and clean, but also who have lived in his ways perfect according to his rule and his desires. So when God looks at you, if you're a Christian, God sees the purity and the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees somebody who, if you trust Jesus and Jesus has dealt with your sin and given you his righteousness, he sees someone who delights and enjoys and loves God. Even though we don't do it perfectly, they're the things that God sees in us. And the result of us having a saviour who is sinless and perfect in obedience and is human results in these two things, mercy and grace. These things are often like put together. They're, kind of, they're very similar, but they're not the same in mercy and grace. I remember I listened to a sermon that Ian preached, I think it was before I, I joined, where he gave you an excellent uh, Scouse accent saying that somebody on a Scouse camp said, you know, there's a difference between mercy and grace. And mercy is not mercy is not getting what you do deserve grace is getting what you don't deserve that's where I say mercy not getting what you do deserve grace is getting what you don't deserve so you can be merciful to your child if you have a child if you haven't got a child it's difficult to be merciful to your own child because you've not got one but if you have a child and they've been been naughty and you've said the punishment for this is you know I'm going to take all your toys and burn them in a big pile out the back. You could say, okay, well, you've been naughty. I'm going to be merciful. I'm only going to take half your toys and burn them in a pile out the back. You can have the other half. Um, you know, that would be merciful. Or you could say, um, even though you've not been perfect as a child, you know, occasionally you might have a tantrum. I'm going to be gracious towards you, and I don't have to, but I'm going to give you your tea this evening or um, some more toys. <laughs> to replace those that I burn out the back. It's not a brilliant analogy, but you know where I'm going. So mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. And for us, if we choose the right saviour, as people living in a world and people who have sinned, what we do deserve is we deserve to die for a punishment for our sin. But the mercy that God shows is that we, that we no longer have to die as a punishment for our sin. And the grace that we're shown in Jesus is the fact that he died, even though he didn't have to, 
and he took the punishment on the cross that we should take for our sin. And that's sometimes called like the penal substitute. Um, the penalty is taken in, you know, on Jesus rather than on us. The, the next one is that the mercy that we, we get is we, don't, we no longer suffer God's wrath against sin on us in hell. Because the grace that Jesus shows is that he, it's this great word in the Bible, this idea of propitiation, it's a, a, a sacrifice that turns away wrath. So as sinners, God is, you know, is unbelievably angry against sin. And as, if we die outside of Christ, we'll bear God's wrath for eternity. But Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus suffered all of God's wrath against sin. So that when we know and love Jesus, our like, punishment for that is taken on him. So Jesus, by grace, Jesus propitiates, he takes away God's wrath against sin. The next one is that by sin we're separated from God, we're, you know, we're alienated from God. And in God's mercy, um, we don't, that no longer has to be the case because through grace, Jesus brings us it back into relationship with God. From Adam and, and since then, we've been bound to, uh, to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. But through Christ and through his grace, we can be freed from sin's power and we can brought, be brought into the kingdom of God. So if we have the right saviour, if we have one who was perfect and was human, he can take away the wrong things in this world and he can give to us the things that we most desire deep down we can become friends with God our guilt can be dealt with for sin Uh, God's wrath was born on Jesus rather than on us we become his children and we become people who live under his rule and those things are all for for our good and our joy One of the things we've done the Christianity Explored course fairly recently, and one of the things that the chap in the, the video kept saying was, we are the choices that we have made. Which I thought was quite an interesting phrase. I don't know where he got it from. It's probably really famous and I hadn't heard it. But we are the choices, or you are the choices that you have made. We are the choices we have made. So if you ultimately choose to spend loads of time playing football and want to be a footballer, you, know, you might become a footballer because they're the choices you have made. But as people living on this earth... We've so often chosen to replace Jesus with something else. And ultimately, there's only one saviour, and that is Jesus. We can only put our hope and our trust and our love into one saviour. And the choice for us is will we put our faith and our trust and our joy and our love and our efforts into Jesus, or will we put it into something else? If we put it into Jesus, he promises to take away our sin, he promises to... Uh, bring us back into relationship with God. He'll bear God's wrath and he'll, he'll take us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. But if we choose to reject Jesus and become our own saviour or use something else as our saviour, that'll only lead to, lead to temporary happiness. It'll lead us to, um, to die as a result of our sin. It'll lead us to bearing God's wrath for eternity. It'll keep us separated from God for eternity. And it'll keep us bound to sin and living under the kingdom of Satan for our life. So ultimately, the choice is ours. We either put our faith in Jesus or we put our faith in something else, whatever it is. One of the things that when you read through that sermon in Acts, I think it's an absolutely amazing sermon. The first Christian sermon that was preached and you kind of, you know, Peter, who'd been an absolute coward a couple of chapters earlier, he's empowered by the Spirit and he gets up and he sort of says, you know, 
um, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem. Um, and he starts his sermon, and it's brilliant. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is what happened. The prophet Joel spoke of this. He says, your young men will see visions, your, your old men will dream dreams. And it goes on, he goes on, and he starts to talk about Jesus. And then, partway through his sermon, he gets interrupted. Somebody in the crowd, it seems, stands up. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, if that happened every week in church, that would be amazing. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus is just sat there, and they think, this is, man, I'm in a situation I didn't realise, but there seems to be a way out. And he's not got to it quick enough, so I'm just going to jump up and shout out, what must I do to be saved? And Peter's response is, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's an amazing truth that if we repent of our sin, put our faith in Jesus, God will forgive us of all our sins and will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit, seals us for for the future, for the new creation, to be with Jesus forever. Ultimately, we get the choice. We either choose Jesus or we don't.